there. I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. And now, here's this week's guest. Okay, so I guess just to go back to basics. Yes. Why was this study done? All right. Very basic. Yes. All right, so the study itself is the first, what we call cohort study. So cohort studies, think about them as a, as a population lab. Sometimes we do experiments in labs, but this is more about the population. So it's a natural experiment, meaning that we, if we really want to understand public health epidemiology with medical and clinical implications of population, we need to get the data from that very specific population. How do we do that? Cohort studies is one methodology that have been very, very successful in other countries to really, really first gather data from the population and then, of course, ask very specific sets of questions. Now, what's unique about this study, it's, again, it's a prospective cohort, which means we recruit study participants, we generate data through physical measurements, lab tests, genomics, microbiome, and then we follow them over time. Now, this is extremely important as a design because to really understand onset of disease on the long run, we need this type of design where you collect what we call baseline data, you follow participants and then some of them will develop disease, some will not, and then you can go back to the to the actual baseline data. So this has a lot of potential, not just to understand mechanisms of disease, but to actually predict onset of disease. And where in the echelon of clinical research does a prospective cohort study sit? And, and, you know, when you talk about gold standard and... Yes, so it's more in the realm of public health. So public health is more about the population, Mm -hmm. less about the individual. So in the clinic or in medicine, usually it's about the patient, it's about the individual. But we know that they're very, very well connected. A lot of knowledge that we get from the population can actually serve the individual patient. But the opposite is less true. So public health can inform medicine and, and the clinic more than the opposite. Okay. Uh, now, ju- just a specific point about that. The one aspect is, again, this idea of preventive health or preventive medicine. Like if we study uh, the general population where we have a snapshot of the population. So as opposed to disease cohorts, where okay, we're going to study cancer, we're going to recruit patients who have cancer or patients who have diabetes. No, this is a completely different design. It's a general population cohort. To really get insights you would never be able to get by studying just diseased individuals. For example, prevalence. You wanna know if you wanna study prevalence for a disease, you need a representative sample of the population to be able to come up with accurate numbers. And our study kind kind of contributes to that. Can you just talk a little bit about the dearth of research? 
involving people from the Middle East and the UAE and how we've relied on Europeans yes, and how that impacts the ability to do anything, basically, from policy yes. to prediction to treatment. Yes. So when it comes to implementation of clinical or medical practices or genetics, this has been traditionally done on Europeans of uh, uh, or populations of European ancestry, either in Europe or in North America or in Australia, for example. So all the knowledge that have been generated from these populations is what drives, for example, development of drugs, for example, or even setting up what is a normal reference range of anything, LDL, cholesterol, any aspect of data that can be used in the healthcare system, like their reference numbers, and those reference numbers, again, have been generated mostly from those populations. Now we're applying the same references, despite the fact that our genetics is different, our environment and lifestyle is different, the, 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 the demography also of the population is different. So genetics, again, is a very good example. If you do diagnostics and you're looking at mutations that are more relevant to your populations, those are not gonna be informative necessarily in this population. So there are a lot of peculiar aspects of these populations that research can help us really identify to be able to use them specifically for these uh, populations. Okay. And just, again, I'm going to reemphasize genetics because, as I showed in one of my slides, less than 1% of the data that have been produced comes from these populations, less than 1%. So we need to do a lot of work to really fill the gap in terms of genetics from these populations. How much of a percentage do you think this work is going to do ultimately to boost that? So a very ambitious project is the Emirati Genome Project, which mm. is uh, led by the Department of Health. The, 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 that project is very ambitious in actually its scope because the idea is to uh, sequence on the long run the entire Emirati population. We're talking about one million individuals. That would be the most and one of the largest actually genomic studies anywhere in the world. Now, that in itself as a proportion of the population is huge. Even if let's say in the US they sequenced 5 million, that's actually nothing compared to the size of the population, which is over 300 million. Mm -hmm. So now it's not just about sample size or how many individuals, it's also the science that is required to understand this data. It used to be very expensive, very challenging to produce genetic data. Now the challenge is not that, it's how do you make sense of that data? And that's where training and science is extremely important. Because we're gonna be faced with, again, hundreds of thousands of genomes sitting there in a computer. How do you make sense of it? And that's where we need research because research is really, really important to make sense of that data, even to analyze it in a way that is appropriate for this population. This population, has some very interesting uh, aspects to it in terms of consanguinity, relatedness, the demographies, individuals who are admixed as well, because the Middle East, you know, it's, it's a crossroad of human migration. So you have contributions of all continents to, to the genetic makeup of this population. Okay, and I heard you mentioned several times in the presentation that the, um, genetic piece 
is not becoming less important. It's becoming like a signal. It's not like a sentence anymore. You know, we used to believe if you had a genetic predisposition, something that was your future. Can you just talk a little bit yes. about that? More that's morphed in the last ten years yes. since this sort of started. Absolutely. So. I have to be careful with that statement because with rare diseases, genetics is extremely important. Mm. We mean what we call monogenic or Mendelian diseases. Those are 100% defined by our genes. Sickle cell disease is an example. So if an individual has a mutation, they have the disease. Now, the environment is not going to change that, but it's going to change the manifestation of the disease, symptoms, severity of the disease. So the cause of the disease could be genetic, but the manifestation and severity of symptoms could be driven by the environment lifestyle. Now, that's for monogenic diseases. The biggest problem are common complex diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular, cancer, asthma, depression. Those are not defined by one gene. Those are defined by so many genes. Now, that's where the environment can play a major role in modifying the risk, what we call the genetic risk. So think about genetics as something it's like it predisposes individuals, but then you need lifestyle or the environment to act on the risk so that the disease takes place. So if we can't classify individuals based on the risk, then we can do something about it. That's, that's really the power of genetics because we can obtain it at birth. Genetic data is, we can obtain it at birth. It can, and my prediction is that it will become part of our medical records going forward. So each one of us will have a file sitting in a computer with all of our genetic data. That will have a lot of use in terms of clinicians can look at it and can use it either for diagnostics, but more importantly for preventive purposes. Because again, the idea is to classify individuals based on risk. This feeds into precision medicine, which is everyone exactly. ta everyone is talking about, personalized and precision medicine. Exactly, and to give a very specific example, we're given the same drugs. You know, we're very different genetically. Our lifestyle is different, but we're given exactly the same drugs. Now, the field of pharmacogenomics is exactly about tailoring therapies to our, genetic, our own genetic makeup. If I know this patient will, let's say, metabolize in a specific way a drug, then I can adjust based on that. Now, this is already applied for things like breast cancer. Based on the genetic profile of the breast cancer patient, we can tailor the most efficient uh, treatment. Now, this can save a lot of resources and money as well as life because if you because you can obtain that genetic risk early enough to actually act on it, as opposed to, you know, just therapies when it's already often too late. So, uh, can you just? I mean, there's been 47 papers published already. Yes. Can you give me or us just some idea of some of the more, you know, the top two or three things that came out of those research papers? that people might want to pay attention yes. to? I would probably address that question more to Dr. Rahid. Okay, per, no because problem. Because uh, I can, yeah, I can yeah. just tell you the promise in terms of discovery that we have will really come from follow-up. What we produced so far is the baseline data. It's what we call cross-sectional analysis. It's one snapshot. But the most exciting discoveries that we really hope to make are gonna come from the follow-up. Because then you have two time points. So we can look back 
at the two endpoints. But again, he can speak for some of the the findings, mainly related to smoking and prevalence okay. of certain conditions. In terms of genetics, where we, we just finished producing the data, so we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at the genetic data. What are the tools you use to look at that genetic data right now? So initially, we do a lot of experiments in the lab. So those are methods where you get blood sample, you extract DNA, and we do what we call genome sequencing or genotyping. That's it's very relatively quick. Like within four or five days, you produce hundreds of thousands, if not millions of data points. That goes to a computer. And then we need to make sense of it. So it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> you can imagine how challenging it is because if you get a few million data points from one individual, but multiply by 10,000 study participants, for example, that becomes a huge problem, competitionally speaking. Mm -hmm. Are you able to use the AI or there, there must be AI tools that are helping yes. you? Yes. So we use a lot of bioinformatics. And bioformatics? Bioinformatics. Bioinformatics. So the application of informatics with biological data. And AI now is an integral part of this, this, this methods. AI now can actually speed up the uh, the pace of discovery, just because the, the methodology itself is very interesting. It, it looks at the data in so many interesting ways that conventional methods cannot necessarily handle. And it's not just about genetic data, it's about integration of all the data together. Genetics, lifestyle, physical measurements, lab tests that we do, microbiome, it becomes a huge problem that AI is able to actually handle. Amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's very exciting. Okay, so we went into a lot of the reasons why this study is happening and what's going to happen next. Um, I'm curious, we've had 47 research papers that have come out so far. Can you just walk us through a little bit of what they have uncovered and what promise they hold? So the first set of papers are based on what we call the baseline characteristics of the cohort. So these 14,200 people, they're filled in questionnaires, had physical measurements taken, blood tests taken, and then we look at the measurements and the data from all of that uh, collection. And then we look at, this is what we call cross-sectional data. So it tells us about prevalence of certain risk factors, for example, hypertension, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, <clears throat> diabetes, etc. also tells us about the characteristics in terms of age, gender, demographics, socioeconomic factors, etc. diet, physical activity. And from the blood test, we can measure various things as well. But the, and that's helpful because it's important to know the baseline of your, of your cohort, but the true value, um, and that's what the publication has been based on so far. So either talking about the prevalence of these risk factors, um, or there's been a particular couple of studies, for example, on the microbiome, um, looking at the bacteria and uh, other, <coughs> other organisms in the mouth. Um, and that's a relatively new area of research. But most of what we've published has been this kind of prevalence data um, on the baseline curve. But the, the true value of this study is really the follow-up. Um, so it's by following people who are essentially disease-free at baseline and seeing who develops disease and then comparing them to those who, who don't develop disease. And that's how we understand what the main risk factors are for these common chronic diseases. Can you talk a little bit about the microbiome and the microbiome of the... I the mouth biome? What do you call that? <laughs> what are they calling it's it? It's called the oral microbiome. Oral microbiome. Yeah, so it mainly looks at the different species of bacteria in the mouth. There are Every part of the body actually has a microbiome. And the main two that have been studied to date are the oral microbiome and the gut microbiome. So the oral microbiome we've been able to study by taking a sample um, from the mouth using saline. 
Uh, the gut microbiome involves taking a fecal sample, which we haven't done yet, but um, both microbiomes are linked to certain diseases. So you can see differences in the microbiome for diseases like diabetes, um, some aspects of heart disease, uh, other diseases. It's a relatively new field. Uh, but what we haven't been able to show yet, because these studies are new, is is the microbiome associated with the disease in a causal way, or is it just a marker? Um, so that's why a prospective longitudinal study will help us to understand. And it does what's in your mouth or in your gut today help to predict, or is it, is it associated with future risk of disease, or vice versa? So our study for the first time will have some ability to look at that. Did you uncover anything different about the Emirati population versus Europeans when it comes to the mouth or, or stomach biome? So there's very little data anywhere in the world, actually, in terms of microbiome. Um, so what we've studied, of course, is specific to the um, UAE population, but it's difficult to make comparisons at this at this stage. What we mainly published on was how the microbiome differed from people who smoke versus not smokers, and people who have something called bakhur or incense in there, you know, who use that commonly, and we found differences in both. Um, but going forward, it will be interesting to see, you know, differences to other populations, also how it differs by diet, um, by prevalent disease, as I said. When you say differences, <clears throat> I'm just guessing that it, it wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't a positive indication, um, smoking. So at this stage, we don't, I mean, it's, of course, it's, so as I said, this is not like a risk factor. It's yeah. more like a marker. Okay. So is it that smoking changes the microbiome? Likely. Um, that's the more, most likely yeah. direction of travel. But we're also interested in to see, for example, do people with a particular microbiome, are they more predisposed to certain diseases? Which is possible. For example, we know that gum disease, bacterial gum disease is associated, <coughs> excuse me, is associated with heart disease. Um, so this is the kind of thing we'll be looking at in the future. So it's more like a note and file now, and then the causation <coughs> and the like, exactly. this causes we'll that, comes later, because you have exactly. a large enough population. So the number one um, risk factor, it seems like, is isochemic heart disease, am I saying? Ischemic. Ischemic. <laughs> me and my medical pronunciation. No, no, it's okay. um, ischemic heart ischemic, disease. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. I've never ever pronounced that right. Uh, that's the number one. Number one cause of death in the UAE. Okay. Um, so that's heart disease predominantly, yep. coronary artery disease, but also other cardiovascular diseases. So that's not uncommon. Many countries have that. But in European countries in particular, in North America, we've seen a very rapid decline in cardiovascular disease mortality over the last three decades. Um, it's now started to plateau. In the UA, not so much, um, so it still remained relatively high. And that seems to be driven mainly by diabetes um, and obesity. Okay. I noticed that the number 10 uh, factor was depressive. So this is measuring the burden of disease. Mm. Uh, so yeah, mental health disorders in general are a major cause of morbidity, um, not so much mortality. But uh, yeah, depression is one of the main causes of morbidity, not just in the UA, but globally. And one of the things that we're hearing about is dementia. Is yes. that going to be addressed in the future moving forward? So dementia is certainly, you know, because it's also linked to the same kind of risk factors as ischemic heart disease. Um, it's like, I mean, the UA population currently is very young, particularly for nationals. It's around 19 to 20. But of course, over time, the population will age and the same risk factors that have caused high rates of heart disease are likely to cause high rates, high rates of Alzheimer's dementia and vascular dementia as well. And so it is something which is an area of interest for us, but particularly in the future. So you've worked on studies in the UK, uh, <coughs> very prominent studies. What has been the biggest challenge or difference in working here in the Emirates? So the hardest thing was certainly getting started in the first place. To do anything for the first time, of course, is difficult, but particularly a study that involves looking at the genetics of a population, asking people for very personal information about their, themselves and their health and linking to their health records 
that had never been done before. And so it takes a very long time to get those approvals in place, to build a trust amongst the regulators and the population, and then to persuade you know, over 14,000 people to take part. That's not easy. Um, I mean, in countries like the UK and the US that have been doing these studies for decades, it's much easier. Okay. And when you're, <coughs> when you're doing this kind of long-term research, and then all these new things happen. Like we heard today, um, <coughs> one of the speakers mentioning that perhaps cholesterol won't be a biomarker that's used. How do you formulate your studies? Because what happens in the middle if the science changes and you're looking for something using <coughs> something? So we always have to keep abreast of all developments uh, globally in the medical literature and, and science. I mean, for something like cholesterol, of course, it's very unlikely there's not a risk factor here because most risk factors apply across all populations. But the importance of it may be slightly different. So it may not be as big a risk factor. We've seen that with smoking as well. So smoking doesn't operate the same in every ethnic or geographical uh, ancestry group. So each risk factor, you really do need individual information at each ethnic group and ideally at each individual level because we're all different. You know, our DNA varies, our lifestyle varies, our environment varies. Uh, and the studies like UA Healthy Future Study and other large cohort studies will allow us to to really get to what we, so it's not, people talk a lot about personalized medicine, which is making sure you get the right treatment to the right person at the right time. But we also have the opportunity now for personalized prevention. So when we can understand that the combination of genetic susceptibility, lifestyle and environment, who's at high risk of disease. And so we can appropriately target interventions to those groups and prevent disease. Okay, and what are you most excited about moving forward? <clears throat> you know, the main purpose of the study, as, uh, as I said, is to improve people's health. Um, that will take time. But uh, this next phase in terms of the follow-up, as I said, will help us to really understand which risk factors are driving the high rates of diabetes and heart disease. <coughs> Excuse me, and then to develop interventions which will then ideally prevent those diseases or at least delay them until much longer. That's good for patients or for the people because obviously their health is better, but it's also important for the healthcare system. You know, all healthcare systems across the world are struggling with aging populations with high rates of uh, common chronic diseases. Um, and so that's why these kind of studies can really help both the people and the healthcare system uh, to survive early in the future. And when do you expect the first sort of chunk of <coughs> information that people will be very impressed by to come out? To so the we're starting the follow-up. <coughs> Sorry, we're starting the follow-up now. So that means bringing people back for further measurements and also linking this to their medical records. Uh, that data will analyze over the coming two to three years. Um, so within the next five years, we'd expect to have the first of key findings, particularly in relation to incidence of diabetes. And because you're staring at this all day long, um, <coughs> in the meantime, what should people do to be healthy? You must have some opinions. <laughs> of course. I mean, to be honest, most of what we know um, from previous studies as I said, will be applicable here. Um, and there are four key risk factors for most common chronic diseases, which is unhealthy diet, lack of physical activity, tobacco and alcohol, which, um, you know, these are the four key risk factors which people need to be very careful about their, their diet, physical activity, and not to smoke, and to minimize uh, alcohol intake. It's kind of interesting because it's so complicated, but also <laughs> so simple. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the big challenge actually is to how to change people's behavior, mm. because most of us know these risk factors, um, but it's not easy to change uh, behavior. But a study like ours can help, again, to understand how best to change people's behavior going forward. And that's the interesting thing, is that you're morphing and changing all the time to try and do that, to try and influence policy. How challenging is that? I think the government here is very keen to work with us and with, with researchers in general to improve that. So we're very much in, in lockstep on that. So there's no resistance there. With our findings, you know, we've got good support from the Department of Health, the Health Authority, Ministry of Health. 
uh, to make sure that there are findings implemented in policies as soon as possible. And are you still looking for subjects or is it finished? <clears throat> At the moment we've stopped recruitment for baseline, that's right. Um, but we, we are very keen for our existing participants to come back for these follow-up visits. Okay, thank you so much. Great. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast. Mm-hmm.